Our scripture passages this morning are Ephesians chapter 5, which can be found in your pew Bible on page 1823, and also 1 Peter chapter 3, which can be found in your pew Bibles on page 1889. I'm going to read Ephesians 5 first, starting in verse 21, and uh, then we'll go to 1 Peter 3. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one even hated, ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. It's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. We're also going to read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through eight. I want you to see a sampling of what the scriptures teach concerning this so that you get the idea that this is not something found only in one place. First Peter chapter three, starting in verse one. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Thus far, the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word, may he bless it through the hearts, minds, and hands of his people. We are going to spend most of our time this morning in Ephesians 5 because I think it gives a more balanced perspective on the contrast between wives and husbands. Um, but I want to uh, start off this morning by sharing a couple of stories and then I want you to give maybe some reaction to it. And then we'll talk and I'll kind of bring us up to speed and help us see where we're going, okay? Okay. 2012, midnight premiere of the movie Dark Knight Rises. 
three men, younger than 30, brought their girlfriends to see this movie. And uh, that night, another man lost his mind, threw in some tear gas canisters into this dark movie theater and began shooting the movie theater up. These three young men, younger than 30, bringing their girlfriends, did this. They threw their girlfriends on the ground and threw their bodies over their girlfriends' bodies. Those three young men were shot dead and their girlfriends were wounded by bullet wounds because the bullets were entering the men's bodies and going into their girlfriend's bodies. That's story number one. Story number two, a sinking cruise ship off the coast of some island a while back was in the news. And strangely, there were reports that men were pushing women and children out of the way to get to the lifeboats. What's your reaction to the first story? They did the right thing, right? And even the secular world praised them. Those young men's mothers and fathers praised them through unbearable grief for what they had done. Because inherently, instinctually, what they did was the right thing. The other story, cruise ship, Men pushing women and children out of the way to get to the lifeboats. The world spat on those men and said, how dare they do such a thing? Because inherently, instinctually, what they were doing was contrary to the way God has created men to be. And because they are made in the image of God, although they hate God and do not submit to his law, They know that that is wrong. There are shining glimmers. There's glimpses of moments like that in our culture and our society where we're reminded again of the differences between men and women and why it's right for men to do certain things and wrong for women to do certain things. But then at the same time, we live in a culture and society where women scoff at men who open the door for them. Who, seek to, who seem to presume that they will pay for the meal, right? So there is confusion in our culture about gender roles, about men and about women, and that's a big reason why we're doing this sermon series. I've continued to think about this issue, and I've thought to myself a few things. One very practical, very real issue is this. If we have children that we're raising... I know this in my own specific situation. I have two boys at home, and I have two girls at home. How am I to raise the boys to be men if I do not know what it means to be a man? How am I supposed to raise the little girls that I have to be women if I do not know what it means to be a woman? And I can tell you right now that so many of the issues in our society and our culture come down to this specific thing. We don't know what it means to be men. We don't know what it means to be women. And so it's crazy out there. It's crazy out there. But as the church who has the word of God, 
we need to be dealing with this issue as the Word of God proclaims it to be. And I know there's lots of misunderstandings about this, and that's why we're discussing it. Last Sunday, I started in Genesis. We looked at Genesis 1, 2, and 3. I tried to show us that male leadership, or probably even a better word for that is headship, is described as something that God created Adam to do, and it's not a result of the fall, okay? So Adam is responsible, right? He is the one that God comes knocking on the door and saying, Adam, what have you done? And we all know from now on that we are born in Adam. Eve is the one who's deceived. Eve then gives the apple to Adam, or it's probably not an apple, but we all use it as an apple, right? But guess what? The buck stops at Adam. Adam is the one responsible. Adam is the one that deals with the responsibility of that. And he was being a passive husband in that situation. He was not living up to what God had called him to be as a man in that situation. We, I said this already. He should have stomped that serpent the moment it opened its mouth. But he didn't. He failed. So we're all born in sin. We're all born in Adam because of that. But that headship continues on into the New Testament, into uh, three places I've talked about, home, church, and culture, right? So these next two sermons, what I'm going to be talking about are what is the men's role in the home? And tomorrow, or next Sunday, we're going to be talking about what's the woman's role in the home? And we're going to be dealing with this right now specifically within the context of marriage, not because single men aren't called to these realities, or single women aren't called to these realities, but because in the scriptures, we see the clearest contrast between men and women in the context of marriage. We see those roles defined. So a single man can appropriately uh, express his masculinity with women in his lives, such as his mother or his sisters, or uh, professionals that he works with who are women, that are appropriate to those specific types of relationships. And the same is going for vice versa. Now, I read all the passage of Ephesians chapter 5 and 1 Peter 3 because I want us to see that both men and women are being asked to do something here. And much of the issue that happens in these situations happens because one is doing it and the other is not, or neither of them are doing it. It's one of those cases where... We both have to be pursuing this calling, and we both have to be seeking after this in order for this to work at all, okay? So let's look at uh, Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm going to try to pull out for us in Ephesians chapter 5 what I believe the husband is called to, and from that kind of speak to what biblical masculinity is, okay? Our theme this morning Biblical masculinity is a sense of compassionate responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect. Biblical masculinity is a sense of compassionate responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect. Now, biblical masculinity is not limited to this. It's broader than that, but it's not less than this, okay? So we're going to look at that um, this morning, and we're going to try to pull out from Ephesians chapter 5 these realities. And then I'm also going to just simply try to give us some more definitions and round it off a little bit. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So let's start in verse 25. The first thing I want us to see is that, uh, of course, verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there is this aspect of mutual submission, and I'm going to try to define that for us uh, a little bit later. Verse 22, it says, wives should submit 
to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. So that's his headship model, right? Uh, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. So Paul is saying, wives, your role is to play the role of the church in the context of marriage. We're going to get to you next Sunday, or the next time I preach on this, and we're going to deal with that S word, that very, very scary S word, submit, and we're going to talk about what that means and what it doesn't mean, okay? But for now, I want to focus in on the men in here, and I want to, you men to hear what I'm saying to this. Now, that doesn't mean women can go to sleep and not listen, because here's the issue. Here's what I want you to get. Here's what I want you to understand. You, women of this church, need to understand what it is to be a man because you are called to encourage us in that and to expect that from us. Trust me, a lot of the boyishness that's going on in our culture right now, the mom, I want to be a professional game, game player, I want to be a professional video game player, a lot of that would stop if women would say, I'm not going for that anymore and I expect more and I want a godly man and they would hold off for that. A lot of that boyishness would be gone. So there's a huge role in this situation for women to encourage biblical masculinity in men and to expect it from them, right? So you need to hear what it is so you can do that well. And I'll say the same thing to the men when we talk about the women. I'm going to ask them to do the same thing. So let's look at lead. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So wives play the role of the church in the marriage relationship. Husbands play the role of Christ. They are not Christ. They are to image Christ. And I think that's an important distinction because we, as husbands, are supposed to be seeking the spiritual betterment of our wives. We are supposed to be telling them, I want you to strive after God with all that you have. I want to see you in devotions. I want to lead you in prayer. I want you to be the best Christian woman that you can be. That's what it means. That's what it means to lead as Christ leads his church. It means sacrificially. It means with humility. It means with humbleness. It means with I'm willing to lay my life down for you. Now you can see that this is not leadership that expects to be served, but serves, okay? This is not leadership that expects to be served, but serves. We're also called to provide. We know that Christ provided all for his people, so let's look at what provision looks like in this text, Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 28, In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. So, after Paul gives the husbands this calling, you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church, sacrificially lay down your lives for the church, Seek the spiritual betterment of your wife in all that you do. Then he says this. If that's not going to get you, 
then I kind of know a little bit about men. They're about themselves, right? They can be kind of self-centered. So, husbands, think of this. Think of this. Your body is no longer yours. Your wife's body is no longer hers. You are loving yourself when you love your wife. It's kind of probably inappropriate to say this, but we've always heard that saying, right? Happy wife, happy life. But there's an aspect here of that. There's an aspect of here that's saying, husbands, I need you to consider this. You are now one flesh with your wife. You are now commanded to have the same attitude of Christ who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, although he was God, but emptied himself and gave up his life for his church, you are now to say, I am not seeking my betterment. I am not seeking what I want most. I am not seeking to sit on the couch so I can watch a game and my wife can grab me a beer. I'm pouring my life out for her. Because to love her is to love myself. And I don't hate my own body. I feed for it. I care for it. As Christ feeds and cares for his body, the church. As Christ feeds and cares for his body, the church. And then finally, protect. The two stories that I talked about at the beginning are an illustration of that instinctual nature that we have as men to protect. And this protection is not, uh, is not something that seeks our own betterment, right? It's a protection of others. Verse 31, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Here in this passage, protect is very closely connected to the idea that Christ has spilled out his, poured out his blood for his church, washed them, cleanse them, and he will bring them to the end. He will bring them and present them before him blameless, spotless. Here in the passage, we are being instructed husbands of one reality, that our marriage is a picture of the gospel and it is temporary because it's not eternal. And our goal as husbands is to seek to lead, provide, and protect for our wives so that on that day that Christ comes and brings us home, we can present our wives before our Lord and Savior, the Lamb of God, and say, I have done all that I can to present her here for you. Holy, blameless. I've washed her in the Word. I've led her in prayer. I've sought her spiritual betterment. I have sought what is good for her rather than what is good for myself. I have loved her as I have loved my own body. I have loved her and served her and led her as Christ did, laid down his life for the church. Now, I've said all these wonderful words, and if you came up here, you'd probably see on my back the words hypocrite because I get it. I'm, I feel the pressure. I feel the weight of these words because I think to myself, I don't live up to this. I can't do this. I fail at this. And so, men, if you're hearing this today and you're thinking to yourself, I've missed out already on that opportunity. 
My children are gone. My wife is distant from me. If you're here today and you're thinking to yourself, I can't do that for a minute, now listen up. Because part of biblical masculinity is being able to say, I know that this is what I'm striving for. And that my wife and my children know that this is what God calls me to. That I can look them in the eyes and say, buddy, that was me. I'm frustrated. I'm angry. I blew up. And I'm going to have to go to Christ and ask that he would forgive me of that. Will you forgive me of that? I repent of that. And that is biblical masculinity. You have the freedom to take risks and to try to strive after this and to mess up. Because we have a gracious God who has given us forgiveness of those mess-ups. And that you now are modeling for your children and for your wife what it means to be able to know that you are a sinful man who knows what, it, what he needs. He needs a savior. And he continuously is dependent upon God that he may live a godly life. And they see that and they see you model that. And that is part of the whole picture. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to try. You have to try. Now, I kind of want to uh, end the sermon by reading a few things from John Piper's small book. It's called What's the Difference? Manhood and Womanhood Defined According to the Bible, where I think he kind of fills out what it means to lead, provide for, and protect in a way that's going to help us be more nuanced in this, okay? Because I, I, uh, I feel, I feel for the women who cringe when they hear the word male headship or male leadership. Because, to be honest with you, nine times out of ten, it's because they've seen a poisonous example of it. It's because they've felt and been hurt by the reality of men who have maybe even used the scriptures to excuse their kind of behavior and twisted the scriptures to use their kind of behavior. All right? So I want to be careful to defend this uh, and explain this in the right way. So uh, John Piper in this book talks about uh, nine things, I think, that are, are needing to be explained about leadership, male leadership. The first one is, he says, mature masculinity expresses itself not in the demand to be served, but in the strength to serve and to sacrifice for the good of women. We talked a little bit about that, but that's important for us to understand. Many examples of leadership in our culture and our day and age are something called toxic masculinity. I'm at the top, so I get to tell you what to do so my life is easier and my life is better. That is poisonous, and that is not what God's word calls us to. And shame on men who use the scriptures to do that. Okay? Number two, mature masculinity does not assume the authority of Christ over woman, but advocates it. So this is what I talk about when I was talking about Ephesians 5, that we're, pull, we're called husbands in the house to play the role of Christ, to reflect Christ. We are not Christ. 
And this is important, especially for women who are in relationships, marriages, where the husband is not a Christian. That's exactly what 1 Peter 3 is talking about. And so, if the husband says, I want you to go steal something with me. I want you to watch adult material with me. I want you to do this with me. Then the wife can say, no, Christ is my Lord and not you. And I will not submit to you concerning things that are against Christ and that would hurt Christ and that would be sinful. But I am willing to submit to you concerning things that are not against my Lord Christ. And especially in a, in a Christian marriage, the husband is to be encouraging his, uh, his wife to go to Christ as Lord, Christ as Savior, Christ as mediator of all. And that's what 1 Peter 3 says, husbands, care for your wives because they are co-heirs with you of eternal salvation. Number three, mature masculinity does not presume superiority, but mobilizes the strengths of others. So it does not say, I'm better, that's why I'm in, 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 the, in the lead. It says, I seek to make you better. That's what it's saying. Number four, mature masculinity does not have to initiate every action, but feels the responsibility to provide a general pattern of initiative. Uh, he gives an example here. In a family, the husband does not do all the thinking and planning. I sure hope not. His leadership is to take responsibility in general to initiate and carry through the spiritual and moral planning for family life. I say in general because in specifics, there will be many times and many areas of daily life where the wife will do all kinds of planning and initiating, but there's a general tone and pattern of initiative that should develop, which is sustained by the husband. Uh, so the husband seeks advice and counsel from his wife concerning many things that the wife is better at because he, as a Christian man and a leader, knows the strengths of his wife, right? Number five, mature masculinity accepts the burden of the final say in disagreements between husband and wife, but does not presume to use it in every instance. So uh, there are times in relationships, husband and wife do not agree. At the end of the day, John Piper is saying it comes, it falls on the husband, but he does not have to accept this at every instance. And a good marriage, decision-making is focused on the husband, but it's not unilateral. He seeks input from his wife, and often adopts her ideas. This is implied in the love that governs the relationship. It's the love of Christ and the equality of personhood implied in being created in the image of God and in the status of being fellow heirs of the grace of life. Unilateral decision-making is not usually a mark of good leadership. It generally comes from laziness or insecurity or inconsiderate disregard. Number six, mature masculinity expresses its leadership in romantic sexual relations by communicating an aura of strong and tender pursuit. I need to be careful in explaining this one, and it's difficult to put into words. But the idea here is that in the sexual roles between men and women, the man is the one who is to be the pursuer. The man is the one who is supposed to be strong in his pursuit of the woman, not passive, not expecting the woman to, to take initiative in that area, Right? Number seven, mature masculinity expresses itself in a family by taking the initiative and disciplining the children when both parents are present and a family standard has been broken. Um, this could be a little controversial, but the idea here is that if the husband and wife are home, if the father and mother are home, the mother defers discipline to the father when that is the case. 
And you know what? This is a very important and good thing to happen for the example of the children, specifically. Number eight, mature masculinity is, before I say this, by the way, that doesn't mean that the, the mom or the mother can't take the husband aside afterwards and say, I think you handled that wrong. Okay? Right? But let's not do that in front of the children. All right. And I've had many of those times. Number eight, mature masculinity is sensitive to cultural expressions of masculinity and adapts to them where no sin is involved in order to communicate to a woman that a man would like to relate, not in any aggressive or perverted way, but with mature Maturity and dignity as, as a man. This would mean dressing in ways that are neither effeminate nor harsh and aggressive. Learning manners and customs. Who speaks for the couple at the restaurant? Who seats the other? Who drives the car? Who opens the door? Who walks in front down the concert hall aisle? Who stands and who sits and when? Who extends the hand at a greeting? He's saying you can adapt cultural uh, expressions of this where they are not sinful and where they help to communicate these differences between men and women. Number nine, mature masculinity recognizes that the call to leadership is a call to repentance and humility and risk-taking, okay? So those are, are ways that we can define leadership uh, or, or, or male uh, headship. And I, help, I hope that, that that rounds it out a bit and that helps us to see that it's not, uh, it's not as, as one-sided or black and white as we make it, but there are so many nuances to this. And I would say at the end of the day, that it's a, it's a sense of responsibility. That's what my theme was, right? Biblical masculinity is a sense of good-natured, benevolent, compassionate responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect the women in our lives uh, according to their specific relationships. This is what we're called to do as men. We are created differently, not, be- not better, Remember, we're, we're defending what is often called complementarianism. God's created men and women equal in their essential dignity and human personhood, but different and complementary in their roles. We are called to complement one another. And this is what I want to tell you men. I have never seen a situation where this kind of leadership is going on in a man's life and the woman does not want to submit to that does not want to be under that kind of leadership. I've never seen it. Because this echoes in the human heart. This is the way we were created to be. If men began to look to the Scriptures to consider how they are called to be as men, then we wouldn't be having conversations today about hashtag me too or toxic masculinity. Because here's the issue. Right now, our culture thinks the best way for us to get rid of the sex scandals and all of these hard and horrible things that men are doing, this toxic masculinity, is to get rid of masculinity altogether. Just throw it out, baby with the bathwater. It's bad. What we need is a level playing field where both men and women are are feminine, gentle, weak, and, and this is what we need. But the cure to toxic masculinity is not less masculinity. It's more masculinity. It's biblical masculinity. It's this kind of masculinity that we need. We need men who are willing to suck it up and to say, God, forgive me for where I've gone wrong. Give me strength 
to move forward, that I may show that you are the one who has created me as a man and that I may live according to that creation. That's what we need in our culture. We need men who are looking to Christ and saying, Christ, help me to love and to lead and to provide and to protect like you did. And when that happens, homes flourish, churches flourish, culture flourishes. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed in it the the way that we should go. Lord, we repent. As men created in your image, we repent the way that we've fallen short. Where we have controlled women rather than leading them, rather than encouraging them, rather than seeking their spiritual betterment. Where we have sought what we wanted, what would make us feel good, what would, it, what would help us to enjoy our life rather than pouring our lives out for our wives and for our children, for the women in our lives. Father, I know myself, I've been, I've been lazy, been passive. I spend all too much time looking at my phone rather than speaking to my wife, praying to her, loving my children. I know I've fallen short. Help us all to be the men that you've called us to be, that we may love you and serve you, and that we may see our wives and our children and the women and our lives bloom and blossom like the women of God that you've called them to be. And in all this, we seek your grace. Help us, Lord, as we seek your face. Answer all these prayers for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.